This is the Radio Bible Class, and I'm your host, Tim Carter. We welcome you to our Bible study as the Radio Bible Class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio with a message that Jesus is alive today. Now, today's lesson is titled, God's Witness, and it comes from 1 John 5, 6-13. But before we start our lesson today, Word Talk Inc. could use your support. Now, playing music on the radio may sound simple, but actually it's quite costly due to publishing rights and royalties. And before that first song is ever played, there's utility bills and tile rental fees and maintenance and so forth. We need people just like you to help with the tax-deductible gifts, and won't you do that today? You can do that by calling us at 601-483-8648, and there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone, or mail us your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Now, your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS-approved as a 501c3 tax-exempt ministry. Now, your contribution is never used for salaries or managerial purposes, but 100% of it goes to the expense of providing the good news of Jesus Christ to our listening area. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you'd like to go back and listen to a previous lesson, you can do that by going to our podcast website. That's Radio Bible Class, with no spaces between radiobibleclass.podbean.com. Or go wherever you listen to your podcast. We're there too, whether that's Spotify or Google or Amazon or iTunes. We're there. Just search for WMER. Radio Bible Class with no spaces between Radio Bible Class. First of all, let me say I'm glad to be back after having the flu for the second time this season. It took me out pretty hard over the last couple of weeks, and we played the Haggai repeats. And I hope each and every one of you got some new nugget out of that. Anyhow, we're back, and we're in 1 John 5, and we're right here starting to wrap up. We're about two lessons away from finishing up 1 John. We'll go right into 2 John. And then we'll do 3 John, and then I plan on going into the book of Revelations. Because I've been out for several weeks and we played Haggai, I want to just give you a quick summary of where we're at. Throughout 1 John, as we've gone through it, the Apostle John has been addressing the matter of authentic Christianity. See, false teachers had slipped into the church, they were teaching Gnosticism, and they had taken a number of people with them out of the church, believing on false claims, claiming that they had secret knowledge about Jesus. But their teaching contradicted what the apostles taught. And the apostles said they were witnesses, and John says it repeatedly that he was an authentic Christian and a witness to Jesus, that he heard him, he saw him, he touched him, he walked with him. If you turn all the way back to 1 John 1, the first three verses really say that. What was from the beginning, what we had heard, what we had seen with our eyes, what we had looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What have we seen and heard and proclaimed to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so what John is saying right here in the first three verses is he's knocking out Gnosticism saying that we were there. We touched him with our hands. We saw him. He was manifested. We heard him and we testify and proclaim that he was live. He was fully God, yet he was fully man. John says that the apostles were authentic Christians 
And because of that, the faith that this church has that he's writing to, these Christians that he's writing to, rest in their faith and God's testimony and Jesus Christ was his son. And we're going to dive into that heavily in just a minute. We are going to see that God gave the Holy Spirit to be the witness that Jesus Christ. Really, we're going to see in the first three verses, verses six through nine, that God gave a trustworthy threefold witness to his son, Jesus Christ. So with this said, let's turn to 1 John 5. We'll start in verse 6. We'll read the first three verses. We'll go all the way down to 13, but we'll just break it up in sections. So 1 John 5, starting in verse 6, I'll be reading out of the ESV. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is even greater because it is the testimony of God, which has been given about his Son. So right here in verse 6, in the first half of verse 6, we see that he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. So what does it really mean? Because there's controversy about this. There are commentators. There were Gnosticism going on at the time. What John is saying, and he wants to make it clear that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not what the Gnostics taught, that he was some phantom, that Jesus was so holy, that he had nothing to do with this world, that he was some spirit. But that we must believe that Jesus is who came by water and blood, and that Jesus was real. He was fully man and he was fully God. If you go look at commentators, you're going to see that there's several different ideas of what did John mean by water and blood. Some would even say this is a very perplexing passage because one, we don't know for sure what the water and the blood speaks of. And I'll give you what I believe. I'll give you some background on all of this, but that makes it perplexing. And then two, there's a passage of scripture in here that was added back in the 14th century that wasn't in the original Greek manuscript. So for those two reasons, there's some controversy around these verses. So first, some commentators believe that the water speaks of our own baptism and that the blood speaks of us receiving communion and that John wrote this so that we would understand as Christians took the sacraments of baptism and communion and even Luther and Calvin had this idea that it was a renewing. Jesus was part of that, even though it was symbolic when we take it. I'm not here to tell you that's right or wrong, but if this is the case, why would John have written came by water and by blood? He seems to write something that's happening in the past, not something that is ongoing like this sacrament. Another thought and that you'll read in the commentaries and this was even thought of by St. Augustine, was believed that the water and blood described the water and blood which flowed from Jesus' side when he was stabbed with the spear on the cross. If you look over at John 19.34, it says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Again, to me, this is a little unclear, because how would it say that Jesus came by water and blood? That does show that he was fully man, when he was pierced, that water and blood came out. But it says here, he came by water and blood. And I'm using that word, came. Now, there's a third group that believed that water spoke of Jesus' first birth, being born of water of the womb. And the blood speaks of his death on the cross. And 
Again, if this is the case, John would be essentially writing, Jesus was born like a man and died like a man, and he was completely human, not some super spiritual being who had no real contact with the material world. And the Gnostics in John's day thought that Jesus was this super spiritual healing. So this has a little bit of, of I think, teeth to it. But again, it really would talk about his birth and him dying on the cross. And then there's a fourth, and I think it is the best explanation of it. More than likely, when John mentions the water, he's talking about Jesus' baptism, and the blood is his crucifixion. We all believe that when Jesus was baptized, he didn't have to be baptized. He wasn't, he wasn't baptized for repentance like everyone else because he had no sin. But he was baptized because he wanted to be completely identified with the sinful humanity that he was coming to save. And when he came by water, it was his way of saying, I am one of you. I am part of you. I am man, even though I'm fully God and came by blood, when Jesus died on the cross, he did not die because he had to. He didn't have to die because of sin, because death had no power over him. But he laid down his own life to identify with sinful humanity and to save us from our sins. When he came by blood, it was so that he could stand in our place as a guilty sinner and take the punishment of sin that we deserve. And if you flip all the way over to John 3, 5, you can tie this back. Where In John 3, 5, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The being born of water in this passage speaks of the cleansing water of the baptism. And being born of the Spirit, we see in Matthew when he tells Nicodemus that you have to be born again, not like a birth born again, but born of the Spirit. You have to be regenerated. But understand, he's addressing what the Gnostics said, that, that Jesus received the Spirit at his baptism, and that the Spirit left him right before he died, and they taught that because how could you kill God on the cross? I don't believe those two things, but I tell you that so you understand the context of what John's trying to address here. I want to go over the baptism real quick, and then we'll go over the death. First of all, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 3, 16. Now, what's happening here is Jesus has come from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. And John tells him, I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you, but yet you come to me. And Jesus says, look, go ahead and baptize me because we need to fulfill all righteousness. And so John uh, agrees to do that. And so that's where we pick up in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So right here we see that God identifies him as his beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit comes down and anoints him right there as well. So we see all three of the Trinity, Jesus, the Holy Spirit that comes in the form of a dove, like a dove, but not necessarily a dove. And then we see God that speaks out of heaven as it's ripped open and says, I am well pleased with my beloved son. I believe this is where he said he came by water. I even like how John wrote about this as well in the Gospel of John. If you want to turn to John 1 real quick, John 
1, 32 through 34, it says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And the second part of this is that the blood which that he talks about came by blood refers to Jesus's death on the cross and testifies to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Turn to Matthew 27. We'll start in verse 50. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurions and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, This truly was the Son of God. The proof is there that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah that's talked about in the Old Testament that John's been trying to get us to understand that he is the Son of God. The testimony of God is the greatest thing that we have to know that we are following the right person. God has given his testimony about his Son. God cannot lie. God has declared throughout three important witnesses that we're going to look at in just a minute that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Therefore, anyone who believes in the Son has testimony of God with him. And with this testimony of God, that it is important that we have that. Matter of fact, John states in verse 11, and then we'll get to that in a minute, that this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. I always err on caution whenever we come across a part of Scripture that has possible multiple interpretations based on commentaries. I try to teach you based on what I understand and what I believe, but you need to work out your your interpretation based on the Bible. I think, and based on the fourth and final one makes the most sense, that he came by water and blood points to his baptism and his uh, death on the cross. Now, the other thing I want to point out, I told you that in the, in the margins or in the footnotes of your Bible, that you may see that some text was added. The New King James Bible makes margin notes in 1 John 5, 7, 8, stating that the words in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, are words that weren't included in the vast majority of the New Testament Greek manuscripts. If you go back to the original manuscript, those that one verse, verse 7, part of that doesn't sit there. And so the words come into question. They don't occur in any Greek manuscript until the 14th century, like I told you. Well, again, I researched this because this is where non-believing Christians will point to telling you can't trust the Bible, that it was just stuff added. The reason why this, I feel, was added was for clarification. Uh, if you look at the first hundred years of Christianity, there were many theological debates regarding the exact nature and understanding of the Trinity. And in all those debates, no one ever once quoted the words that are right here in 1 John 5, 7 through 8. It would be believed that someone would have appointed to this until before the 14th century. 
So this is probably best described as the work of an overzealous copyist who thought that the New Testament needed a little help with the doctrine of the Trinity, and he figured he was going to add a little clarity to it. Perhaps these words started out as a note written in the margin of the manuscript, but next thing you know, they're copied into the manuscript, and therefore, uh, there's question about this particular verse, verse 7. Let me also say, even though there's no explicit statement about the Trinity, it is woven into the fabric of the New Testament. We find Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together as equal and yet distinct persons in Matthew 3, 16 through 17, Matthew 28, 19, Luke 1, 35, John 1, 33 and 34, uh, John 14, 16, John 14, 26, John 16, 13 through 15, John 20, 21 through 22, Acts 2, 33 through 38, Romans 15, 16, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, uh, chapter 13 and verse 14, and Galatians 4, 6, Ephesians 3, 14 through 16, and 1 Peter 1, 2. I don't have time to go into all those, but there, if you go look at those verses, I promise you, you will see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit working together as equal yet distinct persons. You might go, Tim, why are you covering this in such detail? Well, first of all, I want to make sure that passages like this give us no reason to fear that our New Testaments are unreliable, that the Word of God is truly the Word of God. In the entire New Testament, there's only 50 passages, is what the commentators say, of this sort of question regarding reliability of the text. Now, some of you may go, 50? That sounds like a lot. But you have to see it this way. No more than one one-thousandth of the text is in question at all. And through studying, passages that are added like this are for textual evidence and for clarification that was added to help clarify what was being written to or about at that time. Also be aware, folks like the Jehovah Witnesses know about these textual issues and they will bring it up. They'll challenge you on it. So it's important that I warn you or prepare you to understand about this text. Now, the text in verses 7 and 8 should read more like, For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, for these three agree as one. So it's very similar to what was we read in the ESV, but here it's been clarified that it doesn't say the Father and the Son. I went through all this, and here's what I want you to walk away with. John's point is that God's threefold witness to his son, Jesus Christ, is the spirit, the water, and the blood. And it's trustworthy. In a court of law, truth is established when numerous witnesses say the same thing. And when those witnesses are shown to have credibility character, such as John, who walked with Jesus for three years and other apostles all agree, then it isn't just a testimony being made up, but it's a testimony of a credible witness and not only that, but it is these apostles that are saying that Jesus was the Son, he was God's Son, and it's testified by the water, the blood, and the Spirit. And we see in verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is even greater than that. That's what he says in verse 9. The testimony of God is this, that he testified concerning his Son. Every day we trust the testimony of fallen men. We are fallible at best. We lie. We, we may not mean to, but we sin. We lie. Our, we are not truth, but God is truth. 
And what he's saying is if we can trust the testimony of men and God is greater because he can't lie, then we need to trust in the witness of God and his Holy Spirit. Even Jesus testified to this on the road to Demaeus. If you go back and look at Luke 24, verses 25 and 26, he says, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Jesus to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And the scriptures were given by God's clear testimony inspired through men to be written of the Messiah, his son. And we need to believe in God's witness and his testimony because that is how we're saved. That is our sure foundation of our faith that John's been teaching us all through this book of 1 John. Now let's read the rest of our passage. Look back with me at 1 John 5, starting in verse 10. Whoever believes the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out a liar, because they have not believed the testimony of God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. If you want to know that you have true foundation and you have true salvation, it is in believing on the Son of God that was Jesus Christ and you accept the testimony of God, the Holy Spirit, the blood and the water. It says right here that whoever believes in the Son of God accepts that testimony. But whoever does not believe God makes him out to a liar. God is truth. And you either believe or you call God a liar if you don't believe in Jesus, the Son, the Messiah. So John teaches us we can have certainty about our salvation when we believe the Son of God is a witness from God. Matter of fact, Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So when we believe on Jesus Christ and we accept him and make him Lord of our life, it's more than just believing, even the demons believe. Remember, we studied that before, but we have to also act on that. We have to make him Lord. We have to follow his commandments. Those are the things that John's been teaching. When we do that, the Holy Spirit comes to live in within us and he uh, himself bears witness in our spirit that we are a child of God. And then John talks about the greatest sin is unbelief. Most everyone who refuses to believe God doesn't intend to call God a liar, but they do. The great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is very well saying, God, you are a liar. This is not you. This, this is not the one true living God. You are saying God is a lie. And we have to be careful with rejecting God and calling him a liar because over time, the Bible teaches us that it takes us to a place. Over time, it slowly hardens our heart. It hardens us against God to a place where the Bible says blasphemes the Holy Spirit. I believe that means in Mark 3, 28 and 29, that we don't believe we're calling God a liar. We reject Jesus as the Son. But even as harsh as John put that right there, we have in verse 11 some beauty in it. We hear about the testimony that John tells us that God has given us eternal life, and that is life with his Son. 
We need to understand that eternal life is a gift from God received in Jesus Christ. He who has son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. It's all about Jesus and living in Jesus and making him Lord of our life and walking after him and chasing after him. When the Holy Spirit comes knocking at your heart, God is giving you an opportunity for eternal life. And that life is only accessed through the Son. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's very unpopular teaching right now because the world wants you to believe there are many ways to God. Other religions will tell you that we worship the same God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is only one way. To deny Jesus' life, his baptism, his death, is to deny life and be separated from God from now on. And that's why it's so hard in verse 10 where he says, if we don't believe the testimony of God, then we're calling God a liar. I mean, this is a critical truth. This is foundational on our salvation. What you need to walk away from today is understanding if we don't give our life completely, giving everything, not most, but everything to following Jesus then we're looking for another Savior. And that's what the Jews were doing. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And so they were looking for another one. And when we don't give our life completely to Jesus, we're like them. We are living our life in a way that makes God a liar. Life is in his Son, Jesus Christ. And John says in verse 12, the one who has the Son has life. And this all makes sense now. If you go back to the very beginning, the first five verses, we see that we can be conquerors because when we joyfully obey the Lord, his commandments aren't burdensome. That's what it says up there, that we do it because we love God. And loving the Lord builds our faith. And as our faith grows, we can be victorious over sin and over Satan. And by having this love for God and believing God's testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we have eternal life and we will live a life with the Son. And if today we live with him. And if we were to die tomorrow, we go to be with him and we live with him eternally. And so that's how I'm going to wrap up today. If you don't know whether or not you have eternal life, there's nothing more important than to make sure. Go back and read again God's testimony of his son in the Gospels. See the witness of the Spirit throughout the life and ministry and death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. God's testimony to Jesus is the foundation of our faith, as I've said. And I challenge you today, if you aren't sure, make it today. Drive a stake in the ground. The Bible says in Revelations 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open that door, I will come in. Allow Jesus to come into your heart today. Ask him to be Lord of your life. Put a stake in the ground. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we come before you today, Lord. We thank you for this time together. Lord, even though this passage has some controversy, Lord, I thank you for this part of the Bible. Lord, that you show us the foundation that you are a witness of Jesus Christ. As we go throughout, we can see where you spoke of the Messiah coming in the Old Testament, we see that Jesus fulfilled that. Well, we see right there in his baptism how you said that this is my son. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Well, we see that. We see how when he died on the cross and he gave up his spirit for us, even though he didn't have to, he that knew no sin was made with sin so that he could take the sacrifice for us. While we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. What you teach us in Romans. Lord, that we're all sinners. We all need Jesus. Lord, I pray today if there's one that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would ask you to be Lord of their life. Lord, that they would reach out to you and say that they're, admit they're a sinner. Lord, that they'll say, I need a Savior. I can't make it to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And they will ask you to be Lord. They'll give their life fully to you. And they'll, they'll start chasing after you. They'll start trying to follow your commandments like your word teaches us. And Lord, I pray today for the ones that may be struggling with their salvation, whether they really know you. Lord, I pray today they'll put a stake in the ground. Lord, that they'll ask you to be Lord of their life. They'll, they'll ask for forgiveness of their sins. And Lord, they'll start chasing after you. It's not just belief, but our faith means that we trust in you, that we follow you. We trust in your teaching. We are a disciple of you, which means we start trying to be more like you. Father, right now, I just thank you for this time together. I thank you for this ministry. And Lord, I thank you for this radio station that, Lord, you allow us to share the word, not only the word in preaching and teaching, but also in song. Lord, I ask right now, anyone listening, that you would bless them. Lord, that they'll be blessed as we go forward. Lord, you'll let this word fall on fertile soil. And it's in your name we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.